At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She now dwells among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. And Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hands of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. And she herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you this morning, and, and in some way we might feel the, the depths of these words, and, and in some ways, Lord, they are perhaps very unfamiliar to us. Uh, we don't know what to do with grief well. And so, Father, we would pray today that your word would help us, that your spirit would take your word and, and work within us. And give us a language and a practice and a means of, of your kindness and mercy so that we might find hope and so that we might see the hope that we have in you. Lord, instruct our hearts today and help us because we long to draw near to you and we long to understand and, and to, to know your mercy and goodness in the midst of a broken world. So be our grace this morning, speak through your word here, and lead us, help us as we seek to love you, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. 
Well, how do you handle sorrow and grief? What do you do with it when, when you are faced with, with suffering and sadness? And particularly, what do you do with your emotions when, when hard things happen, when painful events occur in your life? When there's loss, what do you do with your emotions? What, what do you do with that grief and that sorrow? Maybe the more direct question that I would ask you this morning is this, is how have you processed and dealt with the grief and loss of the last year? How have you experienced that? What have you done with the sorrow of a pandemic and, and trouble and just a broken world? How have you processed that, that grief in your heart? Culturally, we're not really adept to, to processing grief well. Even in Christian culture, we don't have a good concept of what to do with our sorrow. We, we have some, in some ways been taught and learned that, that the way we handle grief and sorrow is to become angry. And so we get mad. We, we lash out at other people. We become full of despair. Even being divisive and, and, and hurting one another in an attempt to control and force things that are out of our control. When, when the world just hits us and, and we have no control over it, we get angry and try and control it. And that's, and that's one way that we've learned and some of you have been taught, maybe you've been brought up that, that sorrow leads to anger and that's how you process it. That's how you deal with it. Others of us have learned anger and learned sorrow really more in a different way and that is don't show it. You shouldn't be emotional. Take whatever grief, whatever sorrow, whatever sadness is there, bottle it up, push it down, and don't express it. Don't let anybody see you cry. Don't let anybody see you weak. Sorrow is shame, and we don't want to show our grief. Maybe you've, you've bought into the British saying, keep a stiff upper lip. No one's going to know. And so you're just stoic. You're just, just hard. The problem is that neither, neither one of these ways are the ways that God has given us to process and this, handle our grief and our sorrow. For many Christians, the way that we've been taught to handle sorrow and grief is to ignore it, right? Christianity is a positive religion, right? Positive and encouraging. Caleb, that's what we should have. And so any hint or thought of sorrow or agony or heartbreak or despair, we just, we just shuffle it off to the side, because we're victorious people. And so grieving has no place in our, in our culture, in our, in our faith, and in our hearts. My guess is, it's not just a guess, I'm pretty confident of this, you probably haven't grieved well this last year. You haven't processed your sorrows properly and appropriately before God. You've chosen anger, you've chosen stoicism, you've chosen just ignorance. Everything's awesome, right? God, God doesn't want that for us. In fact, this, this book in the Bible, this whole book, Lamentations here, the word lament means to cry out. It's an inspired by the Holy Spirit book of the Bible to help us figure out how to process what's going on in our hearts with the sorrow and the grief and the despair of living in a broken world. 
Many of us, uh, I, I, I would be curious, I'm not going to do this, but I'd be curious just to do a little survey this morning and ask you, how many, how many of you have actually read Lamentations before? Let's try it. Let's see. How many of you read this book before? Recently. Okay, more than I thought. But is it one that we actually go to? Like, you're looking forward to spending six weeks of your devotional time in this book, right? I know I am. No. Like, this is one that we want to shuffle off to the side, put away. We like to forget this book. And yet this book gives us a realistic view of a broken world, and it gives us a realistic view of the sin that inhabits our world and our lives so that we can learn to process the grief and the sorrow we feel well. The practice that that God has for us from this book and from, from many places in the Psalms, in fact, one out of every three Psalms in the 150 is a Psalm of Lament. God's given us a way to process the grief and sorrow of our hearts. So we want to take this next six weeks and begin this new series called Good Morning, taking our sorrows to our Savior. Instead of ignoring or walking away from lament and the practice of lament and and the book of Lamentations as a whole, we we should draw near. Lament is helpful for us. In that book I mentioned by Mark Vrogop, he, he puts it this way. He says, lament is one of the ways that a heart is tuned towards God's perspective. When the bottom drops out of your family or your culture, your city or your nation, what do you say? If we are not careful, followers of Jesus can respond with fear and anger and despair. And in doing so, we reveal a love affair with our culture. We can act as if we do not know the long arc of biblical history. So rather than being angry or fearful or apathetic or despairing, we should choose to lament. We can follow the example of the lament psalms moving through complaint towards trust, and we should follow Jeremiah's example at the fall of Jerusalem. We should express our sorrow while allowing lament to reaffirm the important spiritual realities underlying our lives, our culture, and our future, namely that God has a bigger plan and that He can be trusted. I want to introduce you this morning to the practice of lament and help you see that lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. God has given us a means to come to Him with the hard questions that we express in our hearts, maybe ever so quietly, and to take them to Him and express our heart's sorrow. And He answers. Lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. And I want to help us see this practice through, through the poetry of the book of Lamentations. Now, this book is a collection of five distinct poems. Each chapter is, is a distinct poem. Four of those poems are written in an acrostic format. Now, here's what that means for us in English. It would be as if the writer, if he was writing in English, would start each line of the poetry with a different letter of the alphabet. So he'd start the first line with the letter A and the second line with the letter B and the third line with the letter C. It's very artistic, and it's a very high literary quality. It takes somebody with a sharp mind to write out a poem, an excellent poem, in that fashion. 
And the writer of Lamentations, probably the prophet Jeremiah, has done that with four out of the five poems that are here. The last poem is very deep and helpful as well. But you see this practice. This poetry was written around the context of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC by the Babylonians. God had told the people of Israel, follow my ways, keep my commandments, love, serve, fear me. And he had been excessively patient with them. But the people of God in the promised land had continued to chase after foreign gods. They had made alliances with foreign armies and foreign nations. They constantly disobeyed and didn't listen to the voice of the Lord and chose their own way. And God told them, if you go down that road, you will reap the whirlwind. You'll face my fury and I will send enemies against you. And he sure did that and sending the Babylonians. The Babylonians sieged the city of Jerusalem, and then they found a way in, and they sacked the city of Jerusalem. They razed it to the ground, not one stone upon another. They abducted and kidnapped many of the young noble children, took them back to Babylon, and, and they destroyed the nation. Jeremiah the prophet is writing these lamentations, these songs, as a survivor of that Holocaust and as a witness to the destruction of the city. These laments are his laments. This is how he's crying out to God. And the book asks us, these poems ask God the hard question. They take the sorrow that's there in the heart, and they don't just stuff it down or express it in anger. They take the sorrow right up to God, their prayers. And in so doing, they teach us to lament. They teach us to take our sorrows to the Savior. What this first chapter does is give us permission it gives us permission to say to God, God, I don't like this. This doesn't work. And many times we, we feel like we're not allowed to express our hurt and our pain and our agony before God. But this first chapter invites us in and says, okay, let's take those hard questions. Let's take those things that we're often told. You can't ask God that. Let's take them to Him. And they show us three questions. This first chapter throws, shows us three questions, three hard questions that we can ask God. And that we should. The first hard question that we can ask God is, is how, how, do, how could this happen? God, how could this happen? It's a hard question to ask Him, but it's a good one. The question stems from the very first word of the book of Lamentations. How? In the Hebrew, it's, in, it's emphatic. It is asking God, like, how could this happen? It's an exasperated cry. How lonely sits the city? It's empty. It's lonely. How, how could this happen against your people, God, against the city? This destruction, devastation, how in the world could this have gone down? The poet writes and he asks, how lonely sits the city that was full of people? I mean, Jeremiah is aghast at the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Let me point out a few things that he, he notes just in verses 1 and 2. That, that busy city, that city that was full of life and vibrancy and and activity, it's now desolate. It's lonely. It's empty. Jeremiah, furthermore, compares the city to a noble woman, a princess, and says she's now a slave. That's what it feels like there. Or, or she's become a widow who was one who was great among the nations is now empty, left alone, abandoned. She's described as weeping bitterly in the night, verse 2. She weeps bitterly with tears on her cheeks. I mean, her tears are her food. This is the way the city feels. This is Jeremiah's heart. There's no one to comfort her. 
She's been utterly and completely abandoned. All her lovers, all her friends are gone. She's alone, isolated in her grief and in her sorrow and despair. And, and, the, and the hardest part is all her friends, as it were, they've betrayed her. They've turned their back on her. They've stabbed her in the back. They've, they've just betrayed her. And so they're all now her enemies. This is, this is horrific pain. This is deep grief. The poetry here is capturing the dramatic reversal of the Exodus event. In verse 3, Jeremiah walks right into the Exodus event and reminds us in a way of reversing what happened. If, if you remember the biblical story, God rescued Israel out of Egypt by His power and grace. He, he rescued them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness into the promised land, into the land where the city of Jerusalem now sits, and given them blessing and, and a life of, of joy freedom. And yet now, Jeremiah describes that as all reversed. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. That's her experience, affliction, hard work, hard labor. Instead of being at home in her land, now she dwells among the nations. Instead of having a resting place, she has no resting place. There's no peace. There's no tranquility. She's scattered among the nations. Even, even her leaders, her people are, are pursued. They're, they're hunted down. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Now, this is what Moses warned the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 28. He said as they were preparing to enter that promised land, he said, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples. This is what's happened, and, and the shock and awe and destruction of a proud and glorious city is there. The city now sits in ruins, and Jeremiah rightly laments. He's asking God, how could this happen to me? How could this happen to us? You see, lament, in asking that question, we begin to acknowledge that what should be isn't what is. The way things should be are not reflecting the reality of the way things are. We, we hope for a better future. We, we have dreams of positive life, of, of encouragement, of, of a heavenly hope, and yet in this world, it's not that way. And so what should be isn't what is, and lament gives us a vehicle, a means to cry out, to say, hey, how could this happen? Lament allows us to be shocked and disappointed and crushed, acknowledging things are not the way they should be, not right. I'm sure that there have been times for you where you've cried out and said, how could this happen, God? How could this happen? And maybe there's been some sense in your heart and mind that tells you, no, you can't say that. You've wanted to cry out to God, but there's something in the back of your head that's like, nope, don't you dare ask God that question. You can't. But what do we do with events like September 11, 2001? How do we process grief like the Holocaust? How do we deal with just the last year, the, the enormous amount of life that was lost in the pandemic, the brokenness of relationships and lives over many different things, the loss of friendships and communities? How do we process all this grief? Do we just shut up, put on a brave face, keep a stiff upper lip? Don't you dare cry? Is that how we process this grief? Are you thinking, I can't, you shouldn't ask God these questions? You can't talk to Him about this and say, 
God, how could this happen? That's a betrayal of the emotions and the means that God has given to us. Lament helps you go to God, rightly go to God and say, God, how could this happen? It's taking the right question, the question of our sorrow, to the right place. The reality is the world isn't the way it should be. Death shouldn't be in the world, and yet here it is. Lament is a means to go to God and ask Him the hard question, how could this be? You see, the Christian, the Christian faith isn't an emotionless, stoic experience, no weakness, no crying, don't express grief or pain. It's not everything is awesome. In fact, let me tell you, supposed Christianity that offers you every day is a Friday or you should have your best life now, they're betrayals of the agony of the cross of Jesus Christ. Realism, Christian realism, should be horrified and shocked and devastated when we see war and murder and racism and famine and economic instability and divorce and infertility and abuse and loneliness and abandonment and a whole other host of horrors and evils in this world. We should be aghast. And yet we may have warped and disturbed and cold hearts if we can't cry and agonize over these things. And lament gives us a means to go to God and say, God, how? How could this happen? How lonely the city sits. Friends, you can ask God this hard question. It's not inappropriate. It's a means that He's given in lament to go to Him. It allows us, lament out allows us to ask God the hard questions when we see the brokenness of the world. And lament gives us a means to ask other hard questions as well. The second question that we can ask is, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? Again, the poet Jeremiah here expresses the desolation and the destruction of the city. Look with me at verses 4, 5, and 6 here just real briefly. I'll just note a few things. He describes the city as being completely abandoned or emptied. Everything is desolate. The roads to Zion mourn. Nobody's coming into the festival. You, you, you think about the festivals, the festivals of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, the city was packed out. I mean, it was crowded rooms, crowded houses to celebrate Passover and, and the Day of Atonement and other feasts. Here, here G, G, Jeremiah is looking at the city of Jerusalem and he's saying it's a ghost town. On festival days, the best days, there's nobody there. It's desolate. Everybody's in groaning, the priests groan, the young women, the virgins, they've all been afflicted. They suffer bitterly. The foes of Jerusalem, verse, verse 5, the enemies over her are standing victorious. They're, 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 they're bragging and boasting about their victory over her. The children have gone away. They're captives before the foe. Describes the way that the children were abducted and taken into captivity. They were trafficked to the city of Babylon. All the glory and majesty of the city is, is abdicated and empty as well. Verse 6, the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. I mean, they're just scattered and they're hunted down. They fled without strength before the pursuer. The leaders are attacked and killed. That's, that's deep agony, desolation, and destruction. And verses 7 through the first couple lines of verse 9 take us into another place, an even more shocking place. Jeremiah puts us into the mind of, of the afflicted woman of Jerusalem herself. 
We get a clue in what she's thinking, as it were. Think of this abused and afflicted woman in her mental state. He says that she remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering. So in the, in the moment of this deep sorrow, she's thinking, and, and what's coming to mind? All the precious things that were hers from days of old. Like, there, I had it so good, and now it's all, all gone. The agony of loss fills her mind. She remembers people falling into the hand of the foe, and there being no one to help her. The, the foe is gloating over her as they mock her downfall. Her, her, her mind is filled with the traumatic imagery of assault and abuse. And she's afflicted in her wanderings. Verse, verse 8 tells us that her glory was taken away. She's exposed and humiliated. They have seen her, her nakedness, as verse 8 says. She's publicly tortured and humiliated. It's so bad that the, the poet describes her turning her face away. Nobody can look in on the abuse and the agony that she is going under. Even she herself can't look. It's so horrific. The latter part of verse 9, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter, no friend. She's abandoned, alone, and ashamed. The Hebrew on this is very, very graphic, and it's gut-wrenching, and it's intended to be so. The lovers that Jerusalem had given herself to that are described in verse 2 are now violent abusers. If you have any idea of the horrors of war that are included in occupation and destruction and all of the moral debauchery that goes along with those acts, you have a little insight into what is being described here in the Hebrew language utterly graphic and disturbing. And we're, we're standing here watching this. We're looking in. And a question comes to our, our minds and hearts. Why? I mean, was, it, was this deser- deserved? And, and if so, what did Jerusalem do that would warrant this kind of horror and humiliation? The, the answer is found in verses 5 and 8. Jerusalem undergoes this, this destruction Verse 5, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Note the term there, multitude. This is not just a a singular offense. There is a multitude of afflictions that Jerusalem, the, the people of Israel, a rebellion that they have undertaken against God. God is dealing with her sins. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously. Not just a little white lie, but, but heinous rebellion, horrible sin against Almighty God. And so God righteously, with the hammer of the Babylonians in hand, He brought this affliction on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is responsible. She committed spiritual adultery and idolatry. Her uncleanliness in this spiritual adultery and idolatry, her giving herself to false gods and to foreign nations other than the true God that had rescued her is her sin. And we see here 3,000 years later clearly the perspective that, that God is being just. He is giving to her what she has earned, what she deserves in her sin. Remember Moses said, if you depart from the laws of God, you'll reap this. You'll be exiled. The destruction will be great. And God, in His patience, warned them over and over and over again, repent and repent and repent. 
Remember, this poem is a lament, though, and this lament brings God's grace into focus. You see, we, so- we grieve, we have sorrow, not because the world is just some sort of generic broken place. We grieve and sorrow because the world is a broken place because of our sin. We've broken this world. It's a place of deep human depravity and wickedness. Sin abounds in every one of us. And yet, lament is a means to bring into focus our own sin and allow us to mourn our rebellion personally and corporately. It's a means for us to see our transgressions and to see our sin at the root of the brokenness in the world. I want to be careful here to help you see that, that not every act, every terrible event is the direct result of personal sinfulness. I want us to be careful not to assign every terrible event as a direct result of personal sinfulness. So it would be wrong to say that a woman who's been abused deserved it because she was a sinner. No. It would be wrong to say that a couple lost a baby due to some sin on their own part. I think it would be deeply unkind, lacking compassion and love and wrong to make a judgment that a person got sick had cancer or something like that because they sinned in a certain particular way. No way. Christianity must have a culture. We are people of grace and compassion and mercy and love, particularly towards those who are victims of loss and crime. But lament does allow us to ask about our own suffering and ask God, God, look at me. What, what did I do? What happened in me that I deserve this? And lament allows us to hear the answer back from God that the pain in our lives is is a result of the total impact that sin has made in the universe. We suffer and groan and are faced with affliction because the universe is filled with brokenness. As the Scripture says, all creation groans. We, We taste it. All creation laments. All of creation's groaning includes natural disasters and wars, human suffering and affliction and disease and loss. And so when we lament in our agony and take that pain before God, we're asking the hard question to the right person. We're asking the Father and Judge of heaven what's going on in our hearts. We're acknowledging to God that things are not the way they should be and that because the whole of humanity has refused and rebelled against God and His ways, we're seeing just this broken, sin-filled world and it affects everything that goes on here. Friends, when we lament this way, it opens a door for something powerful in our lives. Confession and repentance. When we lament this way, we, we see, I'm broken, I'm a sinner. And and we can cry out to God in our own rejection of Him and plead for His purifying grace and holiness. With lament, we can cry because of the pain and anguish of our own sin and say, I don't get it, I don't know if I deserve it, but God, show me mercy. And you see, that's where lament should take us, that third hard question. Lament allows us to ask God, how could this happen and what did I do to deserve this? But it doesn't stop there, it can't stop there. Lament has to take us, if it's right and full, it has to take us to the conclusion of asking God Himself, God, do you see me? 
Do you see me? All our pain and suffering cause us to wonder if God is paying attention. Does he, really, does he really take notice? Does he really care? Is he really up there? So far in this poem, the narrator, Jeremiah, has been describing what has happened. He, he's, he's graphically and vividly talked about the destruction of the city. But at the end of verse 9, another voice speaks in. So somebody begins to talk. It's the woman herself, the city personified as this woman. She breaks in, and she speaks, and she cries out, and she says, "'Oh, Lord, behold my affliction.'" The enemy has triumphed. She says, God, look. Look at me. Look at my affliction. Look at my suffering. Look at my hardship. Again, Jeremiah describes this in very graphic and vivid ways. Verse 10, the enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. She has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter the congregation. The Babylonians came into the city of Jerusalem. They entered right into the temple, and they desecrated it. They violated it. They took the holy vessels that were there. Christopher Wright, a biblical commentator on this passage, says that verse 10 symbolizes in the worst possible way the utter triumph of the enemy. In Jerusalem's case, the compounded tragedy is that she who had run after her many lovers among the nations and their gods ends up being viciously violated in the very house of God that she abandoned. Verse 11 describes a famine in the city. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food, their treasures, their most esteemed things, just to have a meal, even to revive their strength. And then the cry comes out again. The woman speaks, look, O Lord, and see, I am despised. She's asking the question, God, do you see me? Do you see me? I want to know how we rightly ask God the question in faith and humility if we don't truly have lament. How do we deal with the suffering and the sorrow and and thinking there is a God up there, but if we don't lament and don't take it to Him, how do we handle that? If everything is suppress your emotions, keep a stiff, uh, stiff upper lip, don't let them see, see you cry, then you're not expressing or embracing the realism of human agony and suffering. And so you can't ask God this question. If everything is designed to be awesome and just a, a sugar-coated plastic life, you won't ask God this question. You won't even conceive of suffering. But the realism of broken world tells us that it's there. And so we've got to have a means to to ask God this question and lament lets us ask, rightly ask Him, God, do you see this? Do you see me? Do you see the brokenness and the pain that I'm feeling? Do you you see what what is maybe injustice against me? Are you paying attention to my suffering? Usually when we see something horrific, we, we turn our face away from it unless we're desensitized to it. I remember the first time I saw a pretty graphic World War II film. And, and in many of the battle scenes, I'm ducking for cover as well. I had to cover my eyes, put my face in my hands even, just because I couldn't watch the violence that was there. That should be our usual reaction to, to war and crime and poverty and violence. Death wants us to turn our heads away. And yet through the practice of lament, we're asking God not to turn His face away but we're asking God to see us in our shame and our guilt and our misery. Yes, we're asking God, even in our sin, to see us and to show us mercy. 
You see, lament allows us to draw close to God in our anguish. It allows us to say, God, do you see? Do you see me? And yet, it makes us wonder sometimes, will God look away? Will He look at how bad things are are in us and go, no way, I want nothing to do with you? Friends, the good news is that God will not look away. He will not look away from those who lament their sin and their brokenness. He will not look away from those in pain and agony. He has definitively answered our cries. He doesn't look away, but He has sent His Son Jesus, our rescuer for us. Think about what's described here in Lamentations 1, the poverty, the agony, the affliction, the pain. And, and, and consider Jesus. Jesus left His glory and lived in poverty and affliction among us, never sinning. Jesus was undeservingly betrayed by His friends, gloated over by His enemies. He didn't deserve it. Jesus was led away as a captive by the occupying Roman government. Jesus was pierced and desecrated, even crucified, hung naked on a cross of wood as a rebellious criminal, even though he was perfectly innocent and sinless in every way. Jesus was mocked and reviled and assaulted. You see, when we look to the cross, that's where we should really lament Jesus' cross is where we should cry out. We should gaze upon his cross and lament and ask God, how could that happen, God? Because Jesus is the sinless son of God. We should gaze upon the cross and lament, asking, what did he do to deserve that? Knowing that we are the ones who deserve the shame and agony of a death like that. We should gaze upon the cross and lament, asking, God, do you see? Realizing that the Father, as the song we sing puts it, turned His face away from His only Son. As His Son, Jesus cried out in lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we should, while we lament over the cross, we should hope. We should hope because Jesus died and rose again to make all things new. He died and rose again so that we would not have to suffer the ultimate penalty of our sin. Jesus died and rose again to secure the reality that the Father will never turn away His head from us, but He will love us to the end. Lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions and see God's grace for us in Christ. We can grieve, we can cry, we can lament knowing that God sees he hears, and He has acted in sending His Son, Jesus, to do everything, to rescue us and redeem us. We can lament with hope. Our God has not abandoned us. Friends, you may be processing this last year and the sorrow and agony of it, and you may think, I've just got to bottle it up, or, or maybe you've become very angry, volatile, and lashing out at others. Perhaps you're just trying to stick your head in the sand and hope it all blows over. But you're not dealing with the hardship and the reality of a broken world. God has given us His grace in the practice of lament to help us see 
the one who has rescued us and redeemed us and loves us, the one who has gone through the worst of human suffering and affliction and sympathizes with us, even goes as far as to save us. God's given us lament so we can go to Him honestly with these hard questions, say, why? What did I do? And God, you see me knowing that He does see us. This is why we should lament. This is why we can cry. We can bring our tears to the Lord so that we can hope. I want to give us space this morning at the conclusion of our service to pray and to lament. I want to give you a moment or two to, to speak to God privately and personally and to ask hard questions and to, to cry even. It's good that we corporately do this together. So I will let you have a moment or two to pray. Take these questions to God. And then I'm going to close us in a prayer of lament corporately as a church family. Let's take our, our cries to Him personally in this moment. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.